Hey, welcome to the Church Home Podcast with Judah Smith. Uh, that's me, Judah. I am so excited to share this message about Jesus and his love for you. I really hope it's a personal encouragement to you. Hey, let us know if we can serve you at churchhome.org. Join us on Pastor Chat uh, on the app. We want to make sure that you are cared for and loved. Without any further delay, let's jump in. Here's the message. Hey, church, welcome back to a collection of talks we are doing about dreams. And the title of the series is Dream Again. We're starting out 2023, and uh, I, I've so enjoyed the series so far. This is part three, then there'll be part four. We're doing a collection of four different uh, sermons, talks, segments, episodes on the subject of dreaming. And uh I just feel so compelled by Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, and that phrase that says, for the joy set before him, him being Jesus, he endured the cross. And I think right now we have need of endurance. In this certain particular point of human history, we need endurance like we've never needed it before. Therefore, we need a joy set before us. We need a dream. We need something to expect and believe for in the future. So we're talking about dreams. Now, I, I want to give you another caveat very quickly, and that is we're, we're not talking about the American dream. We're not talking about your country's dream. We're not talking about just personal dreams or professional dreams or maybe your relational dreams or your professional dreams, as I already said, or your financial dreams. But I want us attached together to what I believe is, is the dream of God. In a moment, I want to tell you a story from what is Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the earliest uh, forms of the community of faith, the earliest forms of the church, which is a term that's been incredibly popularized. And church means a, a called-out community of worshipers or, or followers. I want to remind you again, as we did in part one, that together we are endeavoring not to simply adapt or adopt to concepts, ideals, dogma, theology, tradition. We're here on journey. We're here on a pathway, and we're we're following Jesus. Do you like winning like me? I love winning. In fact, it's been said, do you love winning or do you hate losing more? Which do you love? And I got to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure because I also equally hate losing, right? There's an option to win or lose. Let's choose win every single time. And I'm going to admit something about my own condition, and that is when my favorite team, whether football, basketball, or beyond, when they win, it's we won, right? When the Seahawks win, it's like we won. When the Seahawks lose, sometimes subconsciously the sentence goes, well, they lost, right? It's they (laughs) when there's a loss, and it's we when there's a win, because I think inherently in all of us is this desire to win. So you start talking about dreaming in this country, United States of America. Today, we are recording in beautiful Denver, Colorado. If you've never been to Denver, Colorado, you got to come, grow out a beard if you're a guy, and uh, and, and come to Denver. It is, it's pristine. It's beautiful. Best water, best oxygen. It's a shout out to Denver, Colorado. We love Denver. But, you know, you start thinking about dreaming and you think about winning, right? Because in our culture, 
We are taught from a very young age from all of our commercials and uh, all of the marketing here in this country. We're told to, to dream, dream and dream big, right? Dream to be the astronaut, dream to be uh, uh, the, the great innovator, dream to be the tech genius, dream to be the author and the writer and the dancer, the entertainer, the athlete. Dream big. And that dream is synonymous with winning and success and being prominent and people being proud of you and having fans. And, and all of that is fine, but, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about dreaming again as it relates to God, as it relates to what really matters in this life, beyond your income, beyond your 401k, beyond your retirement plan, beyond your vacation intentions, desires, and dreams. What's the point of this all? What is, in fact, the dream of God? Well, I got good news. We've already won. We've already won. So if you're thinking, I got to dream up how to win so that I can win, I want you to know that you have already won. And I want to draw your attention again to Hebrews chapter 12 because it's there. It says that for the joy set before him, for the dream in front of him that was resurrection and transformation for humanity, I want to remind you that the dream of God is that your forgiveness is complete and done and that you'll receive it and have a right relationship with your designer and your creator and spend eternity with him. That was the joy set before Jesus that gave him the endurance that he needed. It goes on in Hebrews 12 to say, despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of God. There is now therefore no condemnation, so shame doesn't play a role. He endured the shame, he endured the humiliation so that we can reject shame and humiliation and accept that our Jesus who sat down, sitting is a sign of finished work, which is to say your winning or your victory has already been completed. Jesus literally said on the cross, it is finished, which means you win with God. You have already won with God. The most important person in the universe is known and unknown. You've already won with him. By simply receiving the gift of forgiveness and salvation, you have won. So now our dreaming isn't for success. Now our dreaming isn't so that we'll win, so that we'll hope we'll win. Don't get caught up in the arbitrary temporal definitions of our culture of winning, which tells you you've only won when you make more money, you've only won when people know your name, you've only won when you're a big deal, you've only won when you're super cool, you've only won when you're beautiful or sexy or handsome. Don't give in to those arbitrary definitions that are so temporary and fleeting, but anchor yourself to the reality that you have already won eternally. By simply believing in Jesus, you are forgiven, forgiven forever, you're accepted, loved, and you pull up your chair at the proverbial table of his family, and you are never alone. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. He's always near, he's always with you, he's always listening. David said in the scriptures in the Old Testament thousands of years before Jesus, if I make my bed in hell, he is still with me. So now we dream from victory. Now we dream as winners. We're already winners. Now dream. And dream wildly and dream big. Now this is why I think as we kind of sink into Acts chapter 2 just for a moment and this story about the earliest of Christians and the earliest of church members, you're going to see audacious and outrageous dreams that oftentimes are very counterculture 
for these early Christians, but they dream wildly. I mean, frankly, they dream about turning the world upside down. Acts chapter 17 and verse 6 claims in a story about early Christians that they have come to turn the world upside down. They make nothing of Caesar, who was the most powerful ruler in the world at that point. They make nothing of Caesar, and they make Jesus out to be the king. It is clear that the earliest of Christians, their dream was to change the world. And I believe what gives us the energy for such an audacious and outrageous dream is that we've already won. And I believe early Christians believe that even if they kill us for the dreams we possess and the dreams we pursue, we go right into the kingdom of heaven, which is home, and that's where we're headed. I want us to uncover, redig, rediscover, rehearse, revisit the dream of the earliest of Christians, the dream of the earliest of days of the Christian community called the church. And remember, as we dream together, let us dream from victory, not for victory, not for mere professional success or financial success or social standing, but let us dream about changing the world. Let us dream of our neighbors and loved ones and coworkers experiencing true forgiveness and a right relationship with God. Let us dream of peace and joy that flows through the streets as sure as Instagram and Twitter and the metaverse. Let's dream of a pervasive peace and joy that is ushered into humanity, not just for our respective countries where I find ourselves to in and and, and living in and through right now, but let us believe that all the countries of the world, by the millions and billions, will experience the forgiveness, love, and salvation of Jesus. That's the ultimate dream. Acts chapter 2 records what is called the day of Pentecost, which was one of the significant feasts that God instituted with his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people. The Bible says in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost had fully come, and all of a sudden a supernatural phenomenon unfolds around them, upon them, and within them. The Bible says there was like a mighty rushing wind begin to blow indoors, begin to blow in the upper room they found themselves in. The wind is blowing, their hair is blowing in the wind, there's tongues of fire on top of everyone's head. It is, in fact, a phenomenon. And all it was was a manifestation of the presence of God in that upper room. It was God starting his church, beginning the sacred community that you and I are now part of. Oh, there's lots of names for these churches, but there's ultimately, actually, only one church. All the Jesus worshipers and Jesus followers in the world, we essentially make up one beautiful global community. And this was the beginning. These were the infant stages of our constructs and our community that we hold so dear and sacred. It started with a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, and a multiplicity multiplicity of people speaking in languages they did not know that were the language, the native tongue of people walking by who were onlookers and curious seekers who started to wonder what is going on with this small group of just over 100 people, and they were hearing their native tongue. And I would imagine that even the inflections and the tones were perfectly matched with that as if they had 
were fluent in that tongue, and they started to wonder. In fact, some people said, I think they've just been drinking. They've been on cheap wine. I know it's early in the morning, but I just think this is wine. And it's at that point that Peter, one of the few leaders of the church at that point, one of the 12 disciples who had gone through so much turmoil in his own life, he, he stood up and preached one of the great and most famous sermons in human history. And it's there he makes a statement I wanna draw your attention to. He says at the beginning of his sermon, he said, these are the days prophesied by the prophet Joel. I'm not sure if the wind is still blowing at this point. I'm not sure if the tongues of fire are still uh, uh, levitating over the heads of all the people present in the upper room. But he starts to declare, not only to the upper room, but to the onlookers and seekers and passerbyers. I'm not sure that's a term, passerbyers. But those who are passing by, and he says, they're not drunk. We're not drunk. This is God. God is amongst us, and he revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And the prophet Joel prophesied these days. And he makes this statement. This was what the prophet prophesied, and this is what's happening. In these days, young men will see visions, and old men will dream dreams. Title of this part three is Old Men Still Dream. Old men still dream. Now, one of the reasons I love that phrase given to us through the prophecy of Joel and then, of course, resurfaced again in the sermon of Peter is because it is a rare thing for old men to dream dream. Now, am I old? To a lot of people, I am. I'm 44. I can tell you how life seems to want to drive out the dream in you. Have you noticed? You know, you get a little pessimistic. You get a little, uh, I'm going to keep it real. And sometimes we keep it real and we keep ourselves from dreaming, keep ourselves from believing, keep ourselves from putting ourselves out there and hoping for all that God promises in Scripture. It's hard for old men to dream dreams, let me tell you. You start to think, well, maybe that's just not reality. If you're like me, you get a little bit older and you go, well, maybe the dreams of changing the world, I just need to pass off to the young men and the young women who can carry that torch. But I find it interesting that Peter says in his sermon, young men will see visions, which is interesting because when you're young, it's hard not just to focus on what's right in front of you. You ever notice that? You know, when you're young, it's all about, you know, your looks, your body, your stuff. You know, it's like, oh man, my career, everything. But for young people to see visions means they're seen beyond the immediate, beyond the here and the now, which that's rare in the human experience as well. So here we have a declaration, if you're hearing it, Joel is saying God's going to do something so unique, and it was the beginning of the church, that within the context of this church, there would be these phenomenons that would surface, that young people would see beyond the immediate, they'd see beyond the here and the now, by the way, that's how a lot of us make dumb decisions in life, we only make decisions based on the here and the now, and we don't consider how it'll affect our tomorrow or the next decade of our life. Which is whatever's here, whatever's now, that's what I want, right? And if you're like me, I know the tyranny of the urgent, right? And your urges and surges in your own body. And you're like, I'm just going to do this right now. It's not going to matter. And then it can hurt and affect what you love and who you love. So for young men to see visions, they're attaching to something bigger than themselves, bigger than the here, bigger than the now. And that's rare. And then it says old people will still dream dreams. God wants us to dream. And so I think one of the unique characteristics of what we call the church or the community of faith is that young people can see past the here and the now and old people can still keep dreaming about the great things 
that God has prepared for them in their future. I want to be a place of visions and dreams. One old preacher said, visions and dreams are the language of the Spirit. Visions and dreams are the language of God. I believe that there's a dream we're to attach to. I believe there is a vision we're to attach to. And I believe this vision and dream, whether you're young or old or middle-aged, that vision helps you see past the immediate. And the dreams help you go beyond what you need, what you want, when you want it. And you attach to visions and dreams that are in the heart of God. And you find endurance. And you find movement and motivation. The ability to, to stay steadfast even in the midst of such painful and challenging times. Here's uh, what I'd like to do just as we conclude this sermon. I'd like to show you three ways that the church dreamed thousands of years ago. Three ways. I believe that they dreamed of a better way. They dreamed of a better empire. And they dreamed of a better king. They had visions of a better way. They had visions of a better empire. And they had visions of a better king. And, and I want to put this in front of you for, for your consideration. Now, I want to say before we conclude this sermon that what I'm about to articulate uh, by nature is intense. And so I want you to prepare yourself. In fact, I started thinking about it before I came on camera for this particular portion of this series and thought, don't know if I've ever quite said anything like this in more than 25 years of preaching. But I'm going to try to wrap my arms around the reality of the earliest of Christians and the earliest of church and somehow relay it or translate it to you right now watching. This dream, this, these visions, I believe were today we think of dreams and visions and almost always in our culture, at least in the culture I was raised in, I think of personal wants, desires, and dreams. I got buddies who've won Super Bowls and they dream someday they'd win the biggest football game in our country. That's awesome. But that's not really what we're talking about. It's not about the dream of the income you want or the dream of the clothes you want or the dream of the car you want to drive. God cares about the smallest of details. And there is a time and place to dream for cars and dream for watches and dream for shoes and dream for homes. But this, these next few moments, I'd like to dedicate to the biggest dream on earth, God's dream, God's vision, which I think arrested the earliest of Christians and arrested the earliest days of the church. They dreamed of a better way. In fact, do you know that the Christians were originally not called Christians? They were called people of the way. They were referenced, that's people of the way. Now, another title that they gave us was the sect of the Nazarene, the sect of the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene. And they called us a sect. They called us a culture or a community that was separate. And they followed the way of this outrageous teacher, the Nazarene you know, the one who was crucified on Golgotha and allegedly seen by hundreds and hundreds of people after he had defeated death and in fact resurrected as he had prophesied and promised. They dreamed of a better way. 
They put their swords down and picked up their pens. They begin to pin the reality and magnitude and magnanimous ways of God who had revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Instead of lording over people, they started loving people. They dreamed of a better way. They questioned the constructs of their culture and their continents and their countries. They questioned Caesar. They believed that, in fact, there was a better way. Instead of force, they determined and dreamed of using things like forgiveness, faith. They lived in an era where swords and force and lording and customs and tradition were prevalent. In the marketplace of the earliest of Christians and the earliest of believers, you would have to worship Caesar and then you'd receive a mark. That mark, whether on a hand or a neck, I'm not sure if it was charcoal they put on the hand, that it would be known that as you enter the marketplace, you paid your worship to Caesar. Christians stopped getting the mark because they wouldn't worship Caesar, because they believed Jesus was king and not Caesar. They dreamed of a better way. It bleeds right into my second observation. These early Christians dreamed, they had visions of a better empire, a better kingdom, a construct that would serve humanity better. It's incredible. They, they, they believed that, that the kingdom of heaven could come to earth as the teachings of Jesus around prayer taught them. They, they believed that if they prayed, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that God would allow the values and perspectives of heaven to be so pervasive and so invade their kingdom of earth that it would actually change their conduct and conversation and engagement and even their business dealings. They, they believed themselves to be generous, not because they were moral people. They were generous because God, their king, had been so generous to them. Today, you think you take that one topic and you take that one subject of being generous. And oftentimes we think, well, I, I think generous is, is noble and I think people should be generous. And right now I'm tight on cash, so I can't be generous. But that was never the early Christians' perspective. They were generous even in their poverty. They were generous even with their lack of resource and funds. They became generous with things other than money if they didn't have any. They became generous with their time and attention and affection and care. They cared not just for those within the community of faith, they cared for those without the community of faith. And for hundreds of years, the Christian church became synonymous with places like hospitals and orphanages where we would care for our fellow man, whether they believed in our king or not. I believe that we're in a prophetic moment. I believe we find ourselves on the precipice of some of the most unique and unusual times in human history. And I believe that God is asking the church to review, redig, and rehearse the visions and dreams of God for the world. And I assure you, they're not, nothing short of turning the world upside down, as it was said of the earliest of Christians. That in fact, we exist, church home exists, to turn the world upside down, to take a world that is so anchored to personal wants and needs and desires, me, me, me. An old journalist and thinker wrote a book in the late 70s, The Me Generation. Here we find ourselves in 2023, and 
so much of that seems to be have come to pass. We, we think so oftentimes about ourselves. I want to remind you, church, that we exist to live beyond ourselves, that the vision and dream drives us beyond ourselves, drives us beyond things like convenience and comfortability and what we prefer and what we want and what we like or dislike, and it compels us beyond those temporary, trite, and finite things, and we begin to give our life away for our fellow man and for the people God's put around us. We dream of a of a better way. We dream of a better lifestyle. We dream of a better empire. Though we honor our respected presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and leaders, we also recognize that we serve at the leisure of a greater king whose empire is not physical and tangible because it does not fade and rust and rot. It is eternal. The streets are lined with gold and the gates shimmer like pearls and diamonds. It is an eternal empire and kingdom, and our king has no beginning and he has no end. This reality, this overwhelming sense of this grand way and this new king and his new empire was so prevalent and so pervasive and so real. I believe it's why we read stories of early Christians and we are stunned, compelled at the risk that they tolerated the pain they endured, and the loss they seemed to accept, all in an effort to see the dream and the vision fulfilled. Old men dream dreams in church home. Young men see visions in church home. It's more than visions of money and grandeur and cars and shoes and watches and homes. It's the vision of changing humanity changing the world. People have asked over the years, why? Why did we shift as a community? Why have we added that people can stay home and watch via technology and practice their faith with us by the hundreds of thousands and soon to be millions, and maybe they don't have to go to an actual church building because there is a vision and a dream that compels us, that is intended for us to believe that the great God of heaven and earth could change the world, could change the world. So I dream, I dream of a better way, I dream of a better empire, and lastly, I dream of a better king, I dream of a better king. I wanna pay my respects to all men and women who offer their public service to their countries, their public service to their communities, their counties, their states, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank public servants everywhere. You're a unique breed of people and we are grateful. But I assure you, as a fellow public servant, there's a better public servant. He's the best. He has no weakness, he has no shortcoming, and he does not miss a single citizen. He knows their name and he knows what they're facing and they're going through. There is a better leader, there's a better pastor, there's a better shepherd, there's a better president, there's a better prime minister, there's a better king, and he has a name. It's Jesus. You may not know this, and I say this with a sense of sacredness and holiness to what I'm about to say. In the early church, there are scriptures we read, 
For instance, there's a scripture that says, no other name is given among men by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. Did you know before that was a scripture, that was a phrase used in the Roman Empire? And the phrase went like this, no other name given among men can save, save Caesar. That was a phrase that was ascribed to Caesar. Did you know that there was a choir that followed the different Caesars and declared that they were the son of God? Did you know that that choir and statements were made in the Roman Empire that only Caesar was appointed to open the scrolls, which is to say only Caesar knew the mysteries of the gods? Caesar was called the son of God. Jesus comes on the scene, what do they call him? When Jesus goes to the temple, what does he do? He opens the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. Make no mistake about it. It had political implications. It was not popular. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior of the world. Man cannot save man. Only God can. And so we dream. We dream of a better king. In fact, we celebrate the fact that that king has come and he is amongst us and he is gregarious and wonderful. He's humble and he's gracious and he's ever present and his eyes are always towards the people and for the people. Furthermore, he gave his life for the people. I wanna remind you today, Hebrews chapter 12 says, and he sat down at the right hand of God. It was said of Caesar in the ancient Roman Empire that when the Caesar, when each successive Caesar died, he would be seated at the right hand of God. I assure you, he was not. Caesar is not the son of God. Caesar does not sit at the right hand of God. Only Jesus does. Jesus is king. And he's the best king. And he's the only true king. And I dream today of a community that precipitates, communicates, commits itself to these visions and these dreams. It is in fact why we are still here, to attach ourselves to these dreams. And I end again with Acts chapter 17. It says, the onlookers, the complainers, those who begrudged what was happening amongst the believers in the early church, they said, look, they've come here and they've changed everything. They've turned the world upside down. They're, they're not the most agreeable people all the time. What is going on? And it says they make nothing of Caesar and they make everything of Jesus. And I want to say thank you again to our governments. I understand that there's much of my life that is enjoyable and restful and peaceful because of the constructs and confines of this country and what it affords me. And yet we persist. There's a greater king. The Bible calls him the king of all of the kings, the Lord of all of the lords, and the president of all the presidents. I feel sober-minded today as we look at the upheaval of governments and we see men and women groping for power, groping for dominion and control over other countries. And I urge the men and women of the way, you know, you and me, a part of the sect of the Nazarene. I urge you, dream again. See visions again. Young people, see past the here and the now. 
Old men, don't you give up. Talking to all the old ladies out there, we love you. Don't you stop dreaming. There are better days to come. We'll be home soon. But in the meantime, we are here, why? To turn this world upside down. Well, I'm happy to announce today that at Church Home, young men see visions. At Church Home, old men still dream. Pray with me. God, I thank you. I thank you for what you did, for what you did is what you are doing, and you continue. We pledge our allegiance to you, Jesus. You have our allegiance, and you have our worship, and you have our adoration. You offer the better way, the better empire, because you are the better king, and we thank you for that. So we pray your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're watching this episode, you're watching this broadcast, and you would like to receive the free gift of forgiveness that only comes through Jesus, you cannot earn it, deserve it, or warrant it. You just accept it. So I urge you right now, wherever you are watching, to say it out loud, I accept you, Jesus. And it's done. You're forgiven forever. I love you, church. Thank you for allowing me these sober moments to speak so directly to where we are, I believe, in human history and in the history and life of our church we call Church Home. I love you, and I'll see you in our next episode.